Hey everyone, and welcome to the Problem with Authority podcast. Today we are going to be talking about the problem with prisons. So I just finished the book, Are Prisons Obsolete? by Angela Y. Davis, and I thought it would be helpful to discuss my key takeaways of this book to help spread awareness about the problem with prisons. So I want to give a little disclaimer. This is my first dive into um, prison abolition literature, but I think Davis makes some good points and in a short amount of chapters teaches us a lot about history that is often whitewash. So you guys definitely should read this book. I do not touch on everything mentioned. Um, these are just the parts that stood out to me the most, but you can download this book for free online if you just search up Our Prisons Obsolete PDF by Angela Davis. All right, so let's jump in. So why care about prisons? Here are our little statistics for my data lovers out there. Out of 9 million people in this world, more than 2 million people are in U.S. prisons, jails, youth facilities, and immigrant detention centers. If you care about people, you should care about what is going on in these institutions because that is a lot of our world's population in these facilities. Now, the U.S. population is less than 5% of the world's total population, but has more than 20% of the world's combined prison population within the U.S. prison system. Now, that is really, really messed up. So, yes, the U.S. is the driving force of prison, prison models, and they have major influence over what happens in the entire world. And an example of that influence is South Africa. Back in the day when like prisons were on the up and up, um, South Africa was the first country in the world to make laws and policies in favor of gay rights. They abolished the death penalty, but then they saw what the U.S. was doing um, with prisons and they followed that example. They started expanding their prisons over there and having these institutions become more and more oppressive. So that just goes to show that even a really progressive country can be influenced by the terrible, terrible shit that the U.S. um, does with prisons and the way that they're leading by example. Now we're going to dive into a little bit of history. So how did mass incarceration start? In the 1980s, politicians argued tough on crime stances and sold this idea to the public that larger prison populations led to safer communities, more jobs, and stimulate economic development. Prisons were also sold as a place for reform, but from the beginning, prisoners have been stripped of their rights, and the system has denied them access of education, their social lives, food, clean housing, and so much more. This is really messed up, and people ate this shit up, Um, and this led to the creation of many prisons all over, all over the world, not just in the U.S. There have been movements such as the Attica Rebellion to change the conditions that go on in prison, but throughout history, little permanent change has been made. Now we're going to talk about slavery, racism, civil rights, and how that relates to prisons. A lot of people can agree that prisons are racist institutions. So I'm going to start off by asking you all, how do we stop racism in prisons? Do we abolish them or could it possibly be fixed? Just keep that in mind while I'm giving you this next set of information. We have to talk about chattel slavery and how chattel slavery and the prison system are very similar. Both institutions take control of people and force you to be at the will of others. Um, Back in the day, Southern slaves and prison inmates followed a daily routine put in place by their quote-unquote superiors. Both isolated their subjects and reduced their resources to be dependent on others for the supply of basic human needs like food and shelter, and both forced their subjects to work for long hours with no compensation. As you can see, there are a lot of similarities. 
So now let's talk about convict leasing. So a lot of people believe that once slavery was quote-unquote abolished, that slavery, that slavery was actually abolished. Well, it was not. Um, and also, when abolishment was being talked about that back then, white people were not happily like, oh yeah, slavery's bad, we should abolish it. No, they really didn't want that to happen. So they came up with even more ways to treat black people horribly. And this is where convict leasing come in. So convict leasing is where convicts, convicts were leased as groups and worked to death. Some say this was harsher than slavery because slave owners had concern over the survival of their slaves for obvious selfish reasons of investment, but with convict leasing, nobody really had any stakes in the game. So now before abolition of slavery, the majority of people in prisons were white, but when slavery was gone, that changed, and Black people were harshly treated in the system because despite abolition, they were still perceived as slaves. In summary, convict leasing was just a way to continue slavery um, of Black men and women, and before convict leasing, the majority of people in prisons were white people, but once slavery was abolished, they started doing convict leasing, which pushed more black and brown individuals into the prison system. Now, convict leasing was abolished, but we still see in today's prisons the exploitation of people, harsh punishments, and racism. Now, why did, what did prison mean for people who did not have rights? This is such an interesting part of this book, because I never thought about how back in the day, you know, women didn't have rights, black men and women didn't have rights. So what did that mean for them in prison? Because essentially when you look at prisons nowadays, when you go in, a big part of that is is you not having your right to to live anymore. But if you didn't have any rights, what did that mean for you? So if you were an individual during those times that were not perceived as having rights, prison was not used in a way to restrict you restrict you or take away your rights. It was a way to use free labor for increased production of global capital. So yes, we are talking about capitalism, right? So an example of this main goal of prisons was to exploit labor. Just to give a little bit of an example, at the time, there were two competing models for prisons between Pennsylvania and one in Auburn, New York. And the one in Auburn exploited labor more efficiently and effectively. So that one became the main model for Europe and America, with solitary confinement being a huge part of this model. Right there, you can just see that that was really the point of prisons. It wasn't to decrease crime. It wasn't to make communities safer. And a lot of the time, which I'm going to repeat this often because I think it's crazy, that crime was not on the up and up when prison started. Crime was relatively low. So it was really just a way to exploit people and make a lot of money. And we will get into that. Let's think of married women at the time, who at the time did not have standing before the law. So when when a woman got married, it was perceived as quote-unquote civil death, which means the loss of a citizen's privileges through life in prison imprisonment or banishment, which was symbolized by the wife taking the husband's last name. Now, before I read this book, I did not want to change my last name when I got married, Um, just because I do not think that a part of me should die that I've had for so long just because I love someone and I want to get married. Um, My boyfriend Austin and I have had many conversations about this, but I think for me, knowing this fact kind of just further secures that belief of mine. And I'm not saying that if you do take your partner's last name that, you know, you're 
playing into this very terrible time of for women. But for me, I just I really can't get that out of my head. And and I love my last name. Like it just flows like Kirsten Kelly. I love it. Um, and I don't want to give that up. I really don't. So that's just my little spiel on that. Now we're going to get into gender and the prison system. So I have decided after doing all the research for this book that I'm going to do a separate episode diving deeper into this chapter from the book because there's just so, so much information and interesting things that happened with women in the prison system. But I will give you all a little bit of information here. Before prisons were common, women were tortured if their husband deemed them as quote-unquote quarrelsome or unaccepting of male dominance. I'm not going to go into detail what that torture looked like because it was pretty horrendous, but just think about this part of history and what we see today with domestic violence. I, as a social worker, like I struggle so much with domestic violence and I just don't, I don't understand it. It's like, why? Like, where does this come from? Like, do people just hate women? Granted, it does not always happen, you know, to just women. There is, you know, male-on-male domestic violence, woman-on-woman. But in the majority of cases, it is male um, hurting and abusing women. And now looking into the history of it, it, it makes sense. Like, women were tortured. And I can see how we still live in a misogynistic patriarchal society and how maybe some of those ideals still are ingrained in people's head and men think that a they can get away with it because in a lot of the cases the law doesn't protect women and b they think that they are superior in some sort of sense right so in the 1700s one in eight transported convicts were women and the work that they were forced to to perform often included prostitution. So that's a direct quote from the book, which I thought was really important to throw in there because I never thought about them using prostitution against women in that way when it came to being in the prison system. How have women, how are women with the prison system? Now, in the beginning, the models for women's prison had the assumption that women were criminal and they could be rehabilitated by getting back to their quote-unquote womanly behaviors and becoming experts in domesticity such as cooking, cleaning, and sewing. My my stomach is literally turning as I say this out loud because this is absolutely disgusting. Um, And this training was made to produce better wives for for middle-class white women, but to make skilled servants of black and poor women. Now, this is so important because white feminism is such a problem. I'm in a women's issues class right now. We're reading a lot of feminism literature and often this is overlooked. And white women, yes, you were oppressed, but at the same time, you were like, it was worse for um, black and poor uh, women. And we will get into civil rights and all that in a totally different episodes, but it is so important to highlight that the treatment was different for black and brown women or for black and white women. So yes, prisons are here. They're oppressive, like obviously, and they uphold patriarchal practices and white women are still treated differently. So in 2001, there was this organization called Sisters Inside and it was all, and it was a Australian support group 
or organization for women prisoners, and they launched a campaign to stop the strip search with the slogan, Stop State Sexual Assault. So not only was there, you know, patriarchal BS going on in the prisons, there we, they were being forced to um, do prostitution. There was also many other ways that the guards would try and sexually assault women, and that main one being the strip search. I can't imagine going through that. It's totally violating. I and I just, I agree. It shouldn't happen. Absolutely not. But on the flip side, masculine crim- criminality is seen as more normal than feminine criminality with women receiving less harsh sentences and sympathy. So a lot of people just don't believe that women are are capable of committing crimes like willingly if that makes sense so a lot more times women were more likely to be put in psych centers than men because deviant women were considered insane over criminal and a lot of people argue that you know psych centers historically are just as harmful as prisons and i will definitely be doing an episode on that because i really want to get into that type of literature This includes women being more likely to be put on psych drugs to control you. And we also see that in today's um, psychiatric facilities using psychiatric drugs to control people for their behaviors. So for females, this idea of the quote-unquote insane was highly sexualized with white women. And they were deemed as more emotional or having a mental disorder while black and poor women were deemed criminal. So again, there is a difference in the treatment of black women and white women, and it needs to be emphasized. So I'm going to say it again. White women were deemed as emotional or having a mental disorder, while black and poor women were deemed as criminal. All right. And we can see, still see how society still upholds those ideals to this day. Like I said in the beginning of this section, I'm going to do a whole follow-up episode diving more in-depth on the problem with prisons and the treatment of women. But for now, we're going to move on to the prison industrial complex. The prison industrial complex is the exploitation of prison labor and the racialization of prison populations by private corporations linking to an an array of relationships between these corporations, the government, correctional communities, and the media. So that's a direct quote from the book to really give you the full picture of what the prison industrial complex is. And I'm going to repeat this again. An increase in crime was not the reason for building more prisons. A lot of research shows that at the time of of this dumb idea, you know, that crime was was high and it was out of control. It, it really wasn't. It was low and it was even decreasing. The problem now is that corporations rely on prisons for profit. So let's get into this. So with the privatization of prisons, this problem increases the presence of corporations in the prison economy and the establishment of private prisons to fuel the profit of punishment industry. Here is the T, right? Companies that service the criminal justice system need materials to grow and prosper, right? And those materials are prisons and therefore the people that are in prison. So these corporations have major stakes in the prison game and they need to keep a sufficient number of people incarcerated, whether crime is happening or not, for their business to flourish. Some 
states that have the largest number of people in private prisons is Texas and Oklahoma. So we're coming for you, Texas and Oklahoma. But a lot of social workers are against private prisons. That is a slogan, an idea that I've that I've heard before. But I never thought about it this way. You cannot be against private prisons, but for regular but for, you know, normal prisons because they both are equally tied to profit which is so crazy because the book goes into a little bit more in depth on this, but just how like um, corporations like Johnson and Johnson, a lot of their products are bought by prisons, you know, for soap and different things like that. While they also have stakes in the game of being involved in the private prison system. So both prison, both type of prisons are for profit. Um, So we just have to make that really clear And the media loves, 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 I mean, we see it to this day, perpetuating the idea that crime is out of control. They also like to perpetuate the idea that black men and women are criminals compared to white people. Compared to white people who they will be like, oh, they just made a mistake. Or look at their life, you know, like they were going to college and, you know, they just had a little bit of slip up, but then black men and women in the news to this day are deemed as criminal, deviant, uh, that you should be scared of them. It's, it's terrible. And media has a huge impact on society. Huge. So get your relatives off of Facebook, okay? Like, the, it's, the internet is so scary because people can sit there and they can stay in this hole of people on the internet who have the same beliefs as them. And not always are those beliefs good ones and then they just add fuel to the fire and they never have to interact with somebody who has maybe a different outlook than than them and then you also have like the media who loves to just lie and spread bullshit which we know um and especially with um our older generation who is on social media maybe not be maybe is not as aware of this so my generation now, we need to be on on top of that. I know my mom sends me stuff all the time, and I'm like, mom, absolutely not. That lies, fake news, move on. I have to send her a different article. Now we're going to touch on a little bit more racism in prisons. When slavery was abolished, emancipated Black men and women were forced into labor at a time that industries could no longer rely on slavery like it had in the past. So I've talked about this with um, convict leasing, but just to reiterate that these industries really wanted people to work for free labor. And in 2002, um, African Americans as a whole represented the majority of county, state, and federal prisons with a total of 800,400 Black inmates. And I tried to find the data for 2020. I went on the Justice bureau website and it was really hard to find updated numbers for who is in who is the majority in county state and federal prisons um so i feel like that might just be problematic in itself i don't know if they took it down but if anybody has those statistics i would love for you to share them with me now we're at the end and this book leaves us with the question are prisons obsolete right is change possible can we change the racism or do we need to get rid of these institutions completely? So there was an example in the book that talked about a campaign organized by prison activist groups in Melbourne, Australia. 
and they were able to get the government to withdraw a contract for the first private woman's prison. And I wanted to include this example in here because it shows that activism works. We can stop private prisons from going up, from going up. But is that enough? Angela gives us a few pointers on what activists must do. First, we must question the relationship between global capitalism and the spread of the U.S.-style prisons throughout the world. And a challenge that will come up is trying to create a more humane, habitable environment for people in prison without promoting the permanence of the prison system. For example, we often campaign against the death penalty, but we campaign against it on the assumption that prisons are still a great thing for society to have. So I know what you're thinking. Well, what the heck are we going to do if we don't have prisons? What about the people that do really, really terrible things? So let's talk about it. Angela gives us some alternatives for prison. And a lot of you guys already know these things, right? So many people are for abolishing prisons, but like, what does this look like? So an alternative would look like building a society that does not need prisons and we wouldn't be looking for a substitute for prisons. We would be looking for things like redistribution of power and income, community care, school and education, fixing the hot mess of school and education, stop underserving schools within impoverished communities and criminalizing those students. You know, it has to be equal. Healthcare system, free healthcare and access for all. Justice based on reparation and reconciliation rather than crime and punishment, which it sounds easier to me reading it than actually putting that into action. But all of these things encompassing a society that wouldn't involve prisons, decriminalizing drug use, linked to accessible programs to all people who wish, capitalization on wish, to tackle the drug problem. Not everybody might think they have a drug problem. If you do drugs, doesn't mean you have one. It's, it's at their own personal autonomy. Um, This is a really important one. Decriminalizing undocumented immigrants. I said in the beginning that a lot of people are in those institutions that hold undocumented immigrants. We need to stop that. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, We also need to provide more jobs and livable wages for people. I know the $15 minimum wage thing got passed. I know a lot of people are against it because they talk about inflation, but at the same time, a lot of people out there just, they need it. They need that extra help. In order for all of these alternatives to work, right, they all must address racism, the patriarchy, homophobia, class bias, and all other structures of domination. In my head, because I'm a social worker, all of these things should have been done. It's, it's so exhausting fighting against people who don't agree with, like, community care, restitution of power, you know, justice based on reparation, decriminalizing drug use, but there are small programs out there or, and also big programs that I see moving in this direction. So this is the big question I'm sure you all are waiting to talk about is what about people who assault the rights and bodies of others? The people that actually just don't know how to interact with other humans and they really just would kill you for no reason or assault you, you know, I worry about those people too. Angela touches on this a little bit and she says that it would be better to have them take responsibility for their actions with a duty to repair their damage and a focus on reconciliation and restorative justice. And this may be hard for a lot of us to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine, especially 
if we've been violated by someone or somebody was taken from us and we, you know, really wanting justice. I have a hard time, you know, wanting to be like, it would be great if we lived in a world without prisons, but then it's like, what about the the small amount of people that actually are not okay? Like they really can't be around other people because any chance they'll get, they'll just hurt somebody, right? But what I say to that is, especially after reading this book, prisons aren't were not built to stop crime. And I I see it to this day that a lot of people in prison really shouldn't be there. Um, there's a lot of racial bias that happens of putting people in prison. You know, people will go to prison for literally a small drug charge while somebody will get off for, you know, raping somebody. Like, it's definitely not, I don't think it's working. And especially now diving more into how much profit people make off of these institutions, it's really terrifying. And the history behind it, it's the same idea of like defunding the police, abolish the police, the history behind the criminal justice system is terrible. Some people are like, oh, we can fix it from within. Others are like, absolutely not. It has got to go. The only thing that I say with abolition, again, I have not read a lot of research on on this type of advocacy, but for me, alternatives are important before you just get rid of things, right? And it can be hard to fully reach a state, you know, where the power is redistributed. There's community care, free health care, you know, decriminalizing undocumented immigrants. It would take a while for all of those things to align. Do I think that that's where our, our world is going? I would hope so. I know a lot of people that fight for these causes and I would hope that we could live in a world without prisons because like the text says, they don't do what they say that they're supposed to do. And, you know, a lot of people say eat the rich and yeah, because these corporations are making bank off of the exploitation of these prisoners. So that is it for today, everybody. I loved doing this. I love reading, taking notes, and then, you know, just spreading information and awareness to others that maybe just wouldn't have the time to read this book. Um, I still recommend reading it if you can. It's really short. She gives you a lot of information in a short amount of time. But that is all for today. I will definitely be doing an episode on the problems with psychiatric centers. I will definitely be doing a part two to this, diving more in depth on the problem with how women are treated in prisons. And for our next episode, before I do those two, um, we will be, I will have a special guest on talking with us about the problems within the Catholic Church, which will kind of be a part two of our first episode of Problem with the Church, just to give a different perspective on the problems within that certain branch of religion. So I hope you all are doing well. Please take care of yourself. Take a nap. I will see you all next time. Bye.